everyone, James here. So due to scheduling conflicts, we were unable to record the August edition of the Smorgasbord on time, so we are back with another volume of Demo Days. Sorry for the inconvenience, and we'll be back next week with the Smorgasbord, but until then, enjoy this demo. That was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. Oh, are you going to like say any more than that? Or? <laughs> oh, I, just, I didn't know if I... I don't know if there's anything for me to say. Yeah, you just keep going. You, yeah, oh, yeah. okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, awkward pause at the beginning of an episode. <laughs> no problem. We'll you want to try again? <laughs> no, nah, we can yeah. keep going. It's fine. <laughs> okay. I just wasn't used to it. I was like, okay, I didn't know if there was some sort of lead into our conversation that anyone else wanted to take. So I, I, I didn't know if I had whatever you want. <laughs> Well, all right. Um, yeah, like I had mentioned before, I would like to discuss remakes that we all thought didn't do justice to the original, what we think they should have done or should not have done, and uh, who we might choose to take on the property if it were to be made today. Beautiful. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic idea, and I think it's something that a lot of cinephiles have discussed before where it's like we don't necessarily hate the idea of remakes we just hate a lot of the ones that do happen a lot of the ones that do happen might be unnecessary or they don't do anything to to help better the film and then you get the departed and then you get um i was gonna say scarface but i forgot i don't actually like brad defaults scarface nonetheless you get oh really you get the departed. yes no, that's true i don't like that um, no you don't uh, like i like the evil dead remake Okay, there you go. See? And a lot of the films we think of as classics now were actually remakes, like The Maltese Falcon, Gaslight, several others. They have eclipsed the films they were originally based on. Wizard of Oz? Yeah, there were. But then you get into the point of is it a remake or is it another adaptation? And that's a whole other podcast. Or you have have A Star is Born and it's just remade every couple decades. There are probably seven or eight adaptations of A Star is Born that I can think of. Yes, there's uh, four English speaking ones. I know there's a Bollywood one and I've lost track of the rest. Oh, the Bollywood ones got to be wild. I'm sure other countries have taken it on too and television. Or like Little Women. It seems like they will never not adapt that because they seem to do one every couple of years. Again, there are at least nine out there. I've seen three. The 30s one, the 94 one, and the Gurwig one. And they're all fantastic. So, I mean, if they're good, they're good. I mean, there's that. But that's not what we're discussing. We are discussing the ones that did not work. So, James, take it away. Okay, so... um one that I've always had a problem with is Lord of the Flies. Okay. Which version? Uh, the 90s version. Oh, yeah. I've, I've only ever seen the original one and the 90s version. And the 90s version is terrible. And I think it has to stem from the fact that, good or bad, 90s filmmaking was a vibe. And I don't always vibe with it. Especially for something that's trying to be appeal to be a little more contemporary and for everybody. What about the vibe doesn't appeal to you? Yeah, because I haven't seen it. So this is like the the essay in class where you might have to explain to teacher because I've seen the original. I think the problem it's very watered down. Okay, so it's like it takes it takes the material and kind of like it lightens the tone severely. And there's just also a lot of like stylistic things that it's a little too clean and polished for the scenario. And then they also kind of like 
limit the characters in the capacity that they actually operated the original story. Like, uh, like all the kids, it's like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do justice to show how kind of deranged these kids end up by the end of this whole excursion they're on. And there's also like, um, there's also really cheesy things like the death of piggy. They show the boulder hit his head and it bounces off. Actually that part I do know. It's hilarious. It's like, that is not remotely how that would go to boulders. Don't just bounce off your head. But also, I think it's just, you know, they um they kind of tone down the essential psychosis some of the characters go through. Because it's like, you know, I forgot which character, which character is kind of like the, um I don't know, he's not like the, like leader. the macho guy. I'm trying to think, he's kind of like the, he's yeah. like the sociopathic kind of character. Jack they, or Roger? I can't remember. I think it's one. Roger. Maybe it's Roger. Yeah, but they kind of just made him to be like a, like a, like a school bully in this one. Oh. And it's kind of like, no, this is oh. definitely not... And then, like, you know, the the death of Simon, they made it kind of, like, a little bit more flashy and pristine and kind of more of a... It's, like, insinuating they kill him, not, like, a full-on, like, in the original where they, like, charge and just murder him. They just... It's just a little... They just tone it down a little too much and made it for everybody. Kind of like a lot of those 90s films where it's like, I can easily write this off because it's just... It, it just wasn't the time for that adaptation to be done at that time period. And I, I just honestly feel like that about a lot of those movies in the time period. It's like... Had they made made in a different era, they might have been made a little bit better. All right, I was going to say it sounds more like My Girl than it does like Lord of the Flies, which is biting political commentary. As I recall, the '60s one handled the kids and their psychological breakdowns pretty seriously, and they gave it a sort of eerie vibe that really worked well. I'm recalling Grade Eleven English here, but like the kids' choir, all that stuff really established the creepiness. Am I on target with that? Yes, the 60s one is considered a classic. It's uh, released by Criterion. I, I, I think it's still a part of the collection. Um, it's the one that's always shown in, in classes. That's actually where I saw it. Like, I saw it in school, but we watched both versions. So that's how I saw them. We watched The Simpsons Oh, version. that's brutal. So you watched both? <laughs> yeah, we watched both. And I was like, oh, this the original is great. And then I saw the other one because we had also, I think we had also read the book also. So you read the book, watched the yes. original, and then watched that remake. And yeah, the, the it definitely does not do enough to show what the kids really went through. Because it's just like, you know, it's just a, you know, just a bunch of troubled kids by the end of it. Like the schlocky kind of like, it's like, you might as well have Dennis the Menace on the island because it's just. Or it's like the breakfast club. It's not like an actual statement on society and, and anarchy or anything. No, it's the breakfast club. These are these are misunderstood teens who just happen to be here. <laughs> like, well, also it was done in color, and I just didn't agree with that because it was pretty it was pretty basic color like they did in the nineties. Like there wasn't any stylistic choices color wise or even really cinematography wise. And uh I, I just found like the black and white of the original to be very striking because it kind of it kind of adds that certain edge to it that helps push the story along i recall it as being a rather sparse production too in terms of its choices yeah it's very it was a very simple film i think it's like you know they didn't really do too much but it it had they that's one of those things where it's like the story kind of has to tell it and not like not necessarily the imagery because i mean they do very simple things, but it's it's simple but effective and that's what i like about it like the even the death of piggy in that one it's like you know a couple kids are on the mountaintop pushing the boulder over it drops but you don't see anything it just cuts to the reaction 
which is very effective. It's better than a bouncing off the head, like it's a basketball or something. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah. It's like it bounces which off is like the, head. the only part of the film that I've seen, by the way. Man, that's <laughs> that. The entire movie is like that. That's all you need to see. Just that death alone is just like man. Oh God. And the '90s movie didn't it? I mean, in the end, the children get rescued, but they sort of tacked on a bit of rah-rah American attitude to that. Or is that just coming from a Canadian high school perspective? I think that might be. I think it's just it. it it's just as generic as it gets. Because it's like it, it's like you know it wasn't. I mean, it didn't have the that scene wasn't. It didn't have the tone that the original did. It was like, uh, oh, the kids are saved now and everything's better, and it's like. No, like, yeah, it's like this happens, but it's like it's not. Yeah, it, it does kind of have that attitude. Like that—that that is definitely not a perspective thing. It, it it does what you know, kind of like the American thing does. But I love how like every film in the '90s had to have that. Like even like Life Is Beautiful, which is not even American film. It's 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 a Bernini film. <laughs> like it's Italian. Like right at the end, this American tank comes in. And it's like you don't understand a word I'm saying, dude. It's like why did we need this? Like why does every '90s film? That wanted to do well have this thing at the end i think it at least made a little sense for life is beautiful considering the history of it but you know for example independence day it's straight up rule in america saves the world it was totally a thing in that era um this afternoon i was watching the patriot and it was kind of a similar vibe too oh well yeah i mean especially i mean considering the context of that movie and well he didn't make it but you know mel gibson I don't know. I think it's just, there's a lot of those 90s movies in Lord of the Flies included. It's just like, it always seems like, is this made to be syndicated on television? Interesting point. Yeah. That's just about, like, is this, this, this is something they want to plan an airplane or like on a TV channel or something like that. I don't know. I, I think it's just the, the problem with the 90s is like, there were so many great things like, like technique wise and like technology wise. But there was a serious divide in a lot of different areas. Like independent film was nothing like the commercial film. The commercial films weren't even like each other. It's like you had really good grandiose films. And then you had the ones that were just super cheesy. But it's it's one of the ones where like I think practical comedy had its place like it doesn't anymore. Because you got to think of all those comedies in the 90s. It's like they're... <laughs> I don't know. It's just like I, I, th- I think it's like they were all actor ve- you know, acting vehicles for one. But it's like you have people like Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, you know, David Spade with Chris Farley because he's never really good on his own. That's what he floored for twenty years. No disrespect. <laughs> and back then, a star could drive a movie like they can't really nowadays. I mean, it's far rarer. Yeah, now. Well, I think I think a lot of commercial films also had the thing where it was like. I don't think there weren't as many director driven films unless they were like the the highly lauded directors like a Steven Spielberg or something like that. Like you had a lot of directors who really weren't like they weren't a personality themselves. It was like they got the job done and that was it. Yeah, exactly. And there was far more room to avoid adaptational properties. And now it's all adaptations or it's franchises and you can't really go out on a limb as much anymore with other properties. That's very true. Um, but speaking of taking these liberties, who would you have wanted to make that '90s Lord of the Flies? Jam? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily have someone make '90s. I'd actually, actually, I want to. I'm going to discuss who I'd have them do. Who I'd have do it now? 
Oh, now, okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, if it would be if it were to be remade now, which I always said, like if I was ever afforded the opportunity, I would totally do it. But if I had to pick a filmmaker, my first thought was Darren Aronofsky, but I rethought about it, and I think I would give it to Ari Aster, based on Midsummer. Okay, fair enough. Okay, I think he'd be able to bring out a lot of the themes very well given his past work and it's also like thinking midsummer it's kind of in that element of it's like you know this isolated place and you don't realize it but everybody's just sort of crazy by the end of it that's an interesting choice because i feel like aronofsky might focus more on the psychosis behind it whereas ariaster is more of like an observer yeah you get sucked into like you know the hallucinations of the characters in Midsommar. But like, even outside of that, you're also just an observer of a lot of things, which I think would be a lot better for, for this type of story, especially like, you know, the opening parts with the conch cell, you're not supposed to feel like you're part of the conch shell discussions. You're, you're watching a meeting happening and then you're seeing all of this divide start where this, this whole cohesive unit is now being broken up and now they're feuding you're not supposed to feel like you're a part of it, not in my interpretation anyway. So I think Ari Aster, who's better at be- making it an external force, that you're watching it as an observer. Even in Hereditary, like you never, you can identify with a lot of the grief, but you never once feel like it's your family per se. You feel like, oh my God, why does this keep happening to this family? Whereas with Aronofsky, you feel like you're battling addiction you're battling mental health issues you're battling an existential crisis so yeah i think uh i think ariaster is a good pick yeah i I'd, I'd do ariaster but for other roles i would have um emmanuel lubezki do cinematography because oh, i think okay. his storytelling but mixed with kind of that like malik sensibility of like visual and then i give the score to uh trent Reznor and atticus ross Oh, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I, I think that wraps up this episode. We can't top that. I mean, oh my goodness, that sounds good. We just made one of the greatest movies of all time. Now we just got to pitch it. And now I want to cast Nicolas Cage. He's like, oh, that kills it. Goodbye. Farewell. You've killed your chances. Wouldn't any movie be better with Nicolas Cage, though? Actually, you know what? Nicolas Cage is going to be a child. No, actually, if I were to pick a child actor... Jacob Trombley? No, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Noah Jupe. <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh, Noah Jupe would be fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely have him in it, and maybe I don't. Know, maybe some of the Stranger Stranger Things kids. Yeah, they'd be fabulous. Um, Nick or um, Finn Wolfhard, maybe. Yeah. Um, he'd be too old for it now, but I think that the little boy who starred in Where the Wild Things Are about ten years ago was a phenomenal actor, and he would have been fabulous in any of those roles as a teenager. Because he really, yeah, he had to let go of his emotions in a way that I've really never seen in a child actor, and he could have handled it pretty well. And he essentially leads that film. Yeah, he's got you got like a lot of big names behind, like you know the the wild things as they're called. But I mean, it's really the kid who leads the entire thing. So that's that's a great selection. If only we could transport him at that age to like right now, that would be perfect. Film would be so much better with time travel. I know, uh, for many, many reasons. But speaking of time travel, Rachel, what film are you displeased with that you would want to correct? Like, what remake really ticked you off? 
Well, this was part of a larger trend in the sort of last years of the 40s to the very beginning of the 60s. There was this trend of remaking movies from the 1930s. So you had M, you had Morning Glory becoming stage-struck, Red Dust became Magambo. There were many of these adaptations, and some succeeded. Um, Silk Stockings was pretty good. The Judy Garland, A Star is Born, was excellent. And most of them I would call anemic. They were just an attempt to replicate success, and they never really brought back the right ingredients. I don't know whether this was a specific nostalgia for that era or the sort of natural cycle of remakes or both, but the film I want to talk about is High Society. Oh, goodness. Okay. So, I haven't seen that one. Um, it's a musical adaptation of the Philadelphia story, which was this um, screwball comedy. It was adapted from a play. It was written for Katherine Hepburn, actually. And so she had con- creative control over the movie and brought together George Cukor, Cary Grant, all of MGM's top brass, Jimmy Stewart, and the result was lightning in a bottle. The movie has this incredible energy, and the characters play so well off each other that you can believe there are three men in love with the main character. It's just this beautifully witty film. Then came High Society, twenty no, 16 years later. You got Grace Kelly who has some talent, but I find pretty bland next to some of the screwball heroines of the 40s. And then you've got um, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra in the leads as the Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart characters. Yes, way too old for both their roles. And they have absolutely no chemistry with Kelly. They change a whole bunch of the details, but the whole result just doesn't hold up the same way. It doesn't have the same drive. You can't believe any of these characters like each other or that they even know how to land a joke. It was Kelly's last movie before she went off to be Princess Grace, and to be honest, she was pretty bland. Um, the one thing that does work is they it, the music's quite good. It's Cole Porter, and they bring in um, Louis Armstrong to do much of the music. He's kind of a Greek chorus, and he's pretty good, but the rest of it is a resounding meh. But even still, like, I think even with the good music, it almost, I don't know if there's an expression I'm trying to think of that's pertinent to this. Like, um, if something's, like, good and it stands on its own, you know, but if it's not a part of something that it's not very good, the music's good, but it just doesn't fit. Exactly. That's how I feel. Like, you know, the nature of the story, I'm not saying this is, like, His Girl Friday type of screwball, the original but a lot of it was dialogue about miscommunication, about revelation of internal feelings. Like seeing Catherine Hepburn stop mid-sentence and think in her head and you could see it on her face. And then she has to redirect what she's saying with something that we know, but the, the rest of the players don't know. It's a tremendously clever screenplay. Exactly. There's a lot of dramatic irony. There's a lot of, there's just, there's just a lot of stuff going on, but in musical form, it's almost like they're telling you how to feel, not just with the music, but like what they're saying. Not okay, even outside of the music, that's what it feels like. But otherwise, this just feels like, as you said before, like one of those remakes where they just wanted to use this to be, in this particular case, yet another freaking vehicle for Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, who God bless them, but they had enough, and awful. Grace Kelly, who I love. I love Grace Kelly as an actress, but I will have to admit she doesn't always, how do I say this, command a film. And it's something like this, you know, something like this. I, I, this is unfortunate that this is her last 
major motion picture because if this was what you saw first, you would be missing what she's capable of, which is still really good. But yeah, I mean, this film is, is greatly forgettable. That's why most people listening will have forgotten this. Oh yes. What's it called again? Oh yeah, high society. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's greatly forgettable. I'm gonna have to remember so I can watch these. No, don't watch this one. Watch Philadelphia Story. That is the one to watch. Philadelphia Story is worth a look. I, I own it. I love it. I've seen it enough times. It's a fantastic '40s film. So that is the one to watch. By it's George Cukor, right? Yeah, um, and he worked with with Hepburn many times, and a lot of the other people in the movie, and he just knocks it out of the park. One of the all-time greatest filmmakers, that guy. Yeah, and so I really see High Society as an, an epitome of this trend of adapting uh, films from the 30s and frequently turning them into musicals. And it was one that just kind of landed in the middle. It's not atrociously bad, but it's not brilliant, like, say, A Star is Born or um, Silk Stockings, which has really got its own energy. It's interesting that you say that because before you you mentioned what cast and director you you would rather have um george cooker himself pulled off this type of a remake by doing pygmalion as my fair lady and guess what he killed it exactly it was fantastic it was one of my all-time favorite music musicals so if there was a guy to do it it's this guy george cooker for me it would be between him and vincent minnelli because uh, minnelli i mean you can't go to musicals without thinking about him and I've had a hard time thinking of an actress to play the lead role because she's really the linchpin of it all. I think that probably, hmm, tough one, tough one. I would go back to I would go back to Silk Stockings and say Sid Charisse because I think she had the fire and I think she could pull it off. Cool stuff. So you're thinking for Minnelli to make this thing? Um, Minnelli or Cukor, either way. But Kukor is just doing it now as a musical. Exactly. But as we all know, he can do musicals. Damn right he can. I think that is excellent. Uh, and yes, James, if you're going to check out any of these, it's a Philadelphia story, or the Philadelphia story, rather. And we can forget about that a lot. And don't mix it up with Tom Hanks' Philadelphia. I made that mistake once. Well, which technically is a Philadelphia story. <laughs> it's, But it's not the Philadelphia story. <laughs> All right, so the only person we haven't spoken to is you, Andreas. So do you have any ideas? I do. Now, the thing is, and this is kind of funny, I'm going to be off the ball a little bit because my original thing I was going to bring up was my disdain for the Lion King remake, which had so much promise and it could have really pushed the boundaries for live-action Disney films. But I kind of brought up Scarface earlier, and I kind of want to crap on that a little bit. So this isn't really as planned as the other one would have been. Uh, I kind of want to go down that route. Okay, so Scarface, for a lot of people who don't know, is a remake of a Howard Hawks film, which is a crime 30s film classic that's excellent. And, you know, oddly enough, I also brought up The Departed. This is why I thought of Scarface, because a lot of The Departed is an homage to Scarface, believe it or not, and not even Infernal Affairs, which The Departed is based on. So, like, if you've seen The Departed, and I don't want to spoil too much, a lot of it visually, including... Okay, so you know how there's, like, an X every time somebody dies? Like, you can see, like, an X in the background? That's from Scarface. No way. (laughs) Oh, okay. The uh, the Hawks Scarface, anyway. And uh, Hawks' Scarface is possibly my favorite Howard Hawks film. 
Uh, you know, his other stuff is, is really good, but like that's the one where it's like, okay, I love this guy. Actually, no, his girl Friday. It might be that. But the best Howard Hawks film is a tall order. Which I have not seen, actually. No, no, I'm saying it's a tall order to choose the film. <laughs> I thought that was the name of a movie. No, Can you imagine if I lied and I said, oh yeah, tall order, is that uh, James Cagney? Oh yeah, that's really good. <laughs> anyway, speaking of a tall order, I'm so glad this is a test episode unless we decide to release this for bonus content because now people are going to want my address. They're going to want to kill me. I do not like Brian De Palma's Scarface. <laughs> Let me tell you why. First off, I like Brian De Palma. I think Blowout is genius, and it's the greatest Hitchcockian tribute I've ever seen. I think Carrie's fantastic. I think Phantom of the Paradise, The Untouchables. I think Passion is underrated. Honestly, for me, it's Sisters. It, yeah, which I, I hate to say this. I still have not seen Sisters yet, oh, but I will. so good. Scarface, I've seen once, and I never want to see it again. So, hear me out. I think De Palma is an excellent filmmaker, but he can be bogged down by excess. And there's one other filmmaker who thinks the same way, and that's Oliver Stone. So when you put both together, you have a really excessive, exploitational, three-hour romp of drugs swearing, annoying-ass stuff that just won't let up, and it's a migraine for three hours. Legitimately, first off, have you both seen Scarface, the De Palma one? I've only seen Hawks. Yeah, I have. I, I've I've seen the uh, I've seen the De Palma one, not the other one. Well, then you, you both will be uh, Rachel's my right ear, you're on my left ear, James. Basically, I'm speaking to both. This is my surround sound for both. Anyway, um, <laughs> the only part of of De Palma's one that I like to this day is the shower scene with with the chainsaw. Outside of that, that I did that. not give. What's that? I was just going to ask if it was that. Yeah, because, uh, Jesus, the tension. Uh, to detail it for you, Rachel, basically um, Al Pacino's character, I don't even remember what his name is. I don't really care. Um, Tony Montana. <laughs> Tony Montana, yeah, of course. Duh, how did I forget that? Tony Montana is basically inches away from being beheaded with a chainsaw in the shower. And. God, is it nerve-wracking. And if you know De Palma's strengths, it can be tension. But outside of that, all of the nonsense, all of the the excess, all of, you know, the, the whole, I would argue, misogynistic sides of, you know, if you want to have a dream in America, you know, there's antiheroes, and then there's a film that just doesn't know how to separate the audience from the antihero. And I feel like this is one of them. I just find it painful. And I'm sorry to say it, but I do. And that's the end of my rant. For <laughs> there is no little friend. Tony Montana's not my friend. It's funny because apparently when Oliver Stone wrote that, he actually went down to Miami and was hanging out with the Coke runners and like apparently it was like really dangerous. Like they were afraid he was gonna die because he was actually hanging out in that scene just to write this movie. That's amazing. Strictly for research, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> research. Um, for those who like the movie, that that probably sounds like a fantastic sacrifice. For me, it's like you almost died for this. Like I don't know, I feel like really cynical about it. But and I know it's a cult classic. It's just one that I just do not agree with. So if and I know they're remaking it, I'm not gonna give any attention to whoever's remaking it right now. But if I was to do it now. Because it's on the ball, and I haven't prepared this, I was busy thinking about The Lion King. Um, 
Which Barry Jenkins, first off, why are you doing this? You're so much better than Lion King 2. Anyway, before I go down that road, uh, which I was going to before, should, because now I'm improvising, should I go retro or should I go current for this? Remaking Scarface. Go with your heart. Okay, well, my heart says, I was going to initially say Tarantino, but he might... If it's, you know, okay, let's let's assume Oliver Stone has, like, nothing to do with this. You know what? Because of what I've seen with The Departed, I'm just going to stick with Scorsese. Because, basically, he was mimicking a lot of, not the excessive side, but the, the crime, the energy side of the Hawks original. And the, the back-and-forth dialogue, okay, with a lot more swearing, albeit. But I think Scorsese would pull it off, especially because if you know a lot about Scorsese, he doesn't just make gangster stuff. He doesn't just make whatever. He also makes fully fledged things which i hope something like the irishman proved to people it's not just gunplay it's not just whatever it's also the politics it's also the dialogue the cinematography the editing which he always works with the best people including Thelma schumacher um i think overall that would be fantastic as a cast uh rachel what's the original guy's name because it's not tony montana <laughs> uh, i don't remember either i know the original he's not named tony montana because that's actually based on al capone Okay, so Al Capone, air quotations. I don't know why I did that. Nobody could see that. Um, God, who should I go with? Let's go not with the usual. No Robert De Niro. No DiCaprio. Let's make Scorsese work with somebody different. Let's give him Adam Driver. I would watch that. With Adam Driver being this power-hungry guy going crazy. That would be fantastic. And the DOP would have to be Lubeski's too obvious of a choice. It would have to be Hoyt, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Hoyt Hoytema? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah, it is Hoyt Van Hoytema. Okay, so he's on Interstellar, Dunkirk, um, Tinker Taylor. Oh, okay. He's got like a really like frigid, cold look to his film. Okay, I'd be down for that. Which I love. Yeah, so that would be that. And as for score... You know what? Speaking of Nolan, even though this isn't a Nolan film, I left Tenant thinking, wow, Hans Zimmer did it again. But I was wrong. It wasn't even him. It was Ludwig Gorenson who did Zimmer better than Zimmer has done in ages. So I said, you know what? I love this guy, and I love what he did with Black Panther. I want to hear him do this Scarface thing. Let's get Ludwig Gorenson, Hoyt van Hoytema, who also did Tenet, by the way, but not Nolan. We're going with Scorsese, or as uh, as he's called, Birdman, Martin Scorsese, and we're gonna make this Scarface thing with Adam Driver, and that is my remake. That's fabulous. <laughs> That's interesting. It's interesting what you say about excess because when you think of the original and how constrained it was in the '30s, even though the code wasn't fully implemented at the time, it really strikes me that. Um, a 30s version of Scarface with no restrictions might have gone in that direction, too. We, we just don't know. If it was pre-code, maybe. Well, it was. I think it was barely code. Like, a lot of stuff still wasn't being enforced. But even then, they were under a lot more restriction than now. Because I feel like, even like, okay, The Public Enemy isn't taboo by today's standards, but it's still pretty gun-heavy when it, when it wants to go that way. So, I don't know. We'll never know. Because, uh, you know, Hayes and his stupid censorship code ruined a lot of things in Hollywood, but we'll never know. Either way, 
I love the original Scarface, and I'd like to think that my Scarface is pretty good too. I mean, not mine, Marty's. Marty's Scarface would be pretty good too. Ah, uh, so you know, you know who I give Scarface to? Guy Ritchie. Oh my God! Yes. No, nah, see. See, this is where I'm going to get stabbed. Before I was going to get stabbed for the Scarface thing. Now I'm going to get stabbed by you two. I don't like Guy Ritchie. I'm sorry. No, I, I get I'm so sorry. Guy Ritchie, we do some wild casting like Timothy Chalamet or something like that. You know, it's weird. Timothy, Timothy Chalamet came to mind. Oh, no. Guy Ritchie and Shia LaBeouf. Yes. No, see, you had me with Timothy Chalamet. Okay, yeah, no, we, know, could, like, we, could get, we could give him to Timmy, Timothy Chalamet. Shia LaBeouf's going to, like, get you know, like alcohol, you know, prohibited again or whatever, just some crazy method acting that's going to destroy the world just so he can like get into the role of this thing. And it won't be that good. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I want, you know, and then I'd I'd have Roger Deakins shoot it. Yes. Okay. See now back on board. Honestly, talk about the lion King. I have a really good idea for an adaptation of lion King. Um, yeah. Are you guys familiar with, uh, not sure you guys into how into comic books you are, but are you guys familiar with a flashpoint paradox story? No. Kind of. Well, what happens is, um, I don't remember if it's Barry Allen or Wally West Flash. Well, he does. He goes. I think what happens, he goes in the past because he can like travel through time through the Speed Force. He saves his mom, and it changes history. And then when he goes back, everything's all whacked out. And uh, you find out um, he s- comes across Batman, but it's not Bruce; it's his dad because Bruce got shot that night. And then his mom goes crazy and becomes the Joker. Oh yeah, his mom becomes the Joker. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have this idea where it's a reversal where Simba actually dies and then <laughs> Mufasa just goes nuts and he's on a rampage and it's like this whole movie of him like after Scar and killing hyenas. But the thing is... So it's the Patriot Lions. But what it would be, you wouldn't tell anybody it's it's based on the Lion King and you'd have some flashback where he's yelling out Simba and just like ruin everyone's childhood. <laughs> so instead of um, Hamlet, it's kind of more like a King Lear thing then. <laughs> like... Like the Lion King Lear, where I what or Titus Andronicus. Oh, but that that's a better fit. There you go. Because I was trying to think of like maybe Cordelia, but I don't, I don't recall because I'm thinking of Ron by Kurosawa. Um, I don't want to say too much because if neither of you have seen it, I don't want to spoil it. But anyway, let's not go down that road. The Lion King. Okay, so what my my idea for the Lion King was. <laughs> That's going to sound mental. I wanted Claire Denis to do like this art house version with like the same special effects artists, but instead of making them sing and stuff, like a hyper realistic, really art house animal version, again with Claire Denis as, as the director. And the stars could be the same just without the whole Disney vibe to it. Uh, Rachel, what would your Lion King look like? It would be an adaptation of the Broadway version instead of the original movie. So different. See, that's cool. Additional music. I can't decide whether I'd want dancers filmed like it's a movie or whether I'd want a Hamilton-style film play because there's advantages and disadvantages to both, just not whatever the hell they did with Cats, but anything else is good. <laughs> that's exactly... I wasn't thinking why they were thinking Cats. I was just saying, can we get, like, how they did Cats with just... They'll just be people in animal costumes and then... <laughs> Yeah, the, the Broadway show is such an amazing spectacle, though. Like, they, they use masks and all kinds of different dancing. It, it's really cool the way they pull it off. So I think it could work. Um, I actually think Cats would have worked if they'd used real dancers in the same regard, because it didn't hit the uncanny valley, and you could say, wow, humans can do that. Initially, they wanted it to be, like, animated cats, but not, like, whatever abominations they had, but, like, literal domesticated cats. But... 
of course, the the worst chain reaction in recent cinematic history. Um, David Fincher was robbed of his Best Director Oscar for that year, and so was The Social Network. Tom Hooper somehow got rewarded because of stupid campaigning, <laughs> and he went on to make Cats. Yeah, well, see, Cats would have never been made if this never happened. So thanks a lot, Academy. Thanks a lot. I mean, that's not that's not uncommon for the Academy to make wrong decisions. I mean, just ask Spike Lee. That's true. Well, they made a lot of yeah, decisions. Yeah, Rob, twice. Okay, can I just add, I would absolutely watch the Spike Lee version of The Lion King. <laughs> hey! Hey! A Spike Lee joint! That, that would be so bizarre. But you would watch it many times. And Adam Driver can be Zazu. <laughs> okay, so Adam Driver's back in this joint, too. Adam Driver is the actor of the day. You said the secret word. Uh, so, uh, Zazu would be fantastic. Um... Okay, I guess in the final minutes of this thing, let's make the Spike Lee joint happen. Okay, so Simba, young Simba, has got to be, oh, God, uh, young Simba has got Michael to be. Unknown, both an unknown. Oh, an unknown? I was going to, yeah, Michael B. Jordan could be adult Simba. That would be cool. That would be amazing. That would be cool. James Earl Jones keeps Nala, his role, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like the one thing that the Disney one did, right? And, okay, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Scar, I know he can do I it. Let's that. keep him, please. Yes, keep him, please, because, like, he, the original didn't give him a chance. Timon and Pumbo, who do we got? Uh, oh, I want to keep Eric Andre, though. Can we keep Eric Andre? Sure. Uh, let's let's um, promote him to Pumba. How's that? So he's not like one of the hyenas. Now he's got like an actual legitimate big part. So Timon has got to be Daniel Levy. Yeah, that sounds good. What do you guys think? I can't think of who that is. Let me look. Uh, Shit's Creek. Yes. I. Oh, I haven't seen it, but I know I know the dude you're talking about. Who'd be Mufasa? My vote, Denzel. Sounds about right. Except we said oh. James Earl Jones. Yeah. Something, but. But if he doesn't want to do it again because Disney really ruined his life, <laughs> Denzel Washington? It's like Denzel Washington or Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Morgan Freeman. Uh, no, I'm going with that. Naomi Harris can be Nala. Hey, that is a good casting choice. I like Ooh. it. I love her. She's too underrated. Naomi Harris, uh, Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Oh. Huh. I've been waiting for her to break out since Pirates of the Caribbean. or No, 28 Days Later. That was the one. Yeah, yeah, when she's um, one of the survivors of the yeah. apocalypse. Yes, like, yes, please. She's too underutilized. Uh, that The hyenas might as well be the Jonas Brothers. I don't know. No, 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 no. The hyenas got to be oh, the dudes from Workaholics. Sure. Okay. They can have, like, a little bit of screen time because uh, I, I don't put too much uh, stock into that. Uh not workaholics, but you know the hyenas. I love hyenas, but like you know they're not the biggest. Or part. just the cast from um, Always Sunny could be the hyenas. <laughs> can you imagine just like one of the hyenas being like, "Well, you know," <laughs> so like just being uh, Charlie Day. <laughs> Actually, yeah, let's go with the, the it's Always Sunny gang. I love them. Yes. And uh, on that note, D would literally be a bird. She could be an ostrich. There you go. <laughs> So as we're heading into the end of the episode, we usually recommend a movie at the end of the week. And I had a thought. And it's, what is a remake that did work that you would like to recommend? Okay. Do you want to start things off? That sounds like a great way to go into this. Sure. So my pick for this week is The Birdcage, adapted from the French La Cage which is amazing. 
What I like about this one is that it, I, it's usually a pet peeve of mine when remakes Americanize a movie, but they did it really well by adapting it to the political circumstance and um, making it really fit the society it was in, where other movies just change the place name and move on. Also, I thought their cast, they used the talents of their unbelievable cast, Hackman, Williams, Lane, Wiest, um, Christine Baranski, just so well that it really brought a unique style to the movie that made it clear they weren't just trying to be the French one over again. So I would recommend that for its incredible cast. And it is a great film. That is, it, And it's a progressive film, too. I think, it's a, I think it's an excellent one. James, do you have a recommendation? Um, honestly, I mentioned it at the beginning of the episode. I got to go with uh, the Evil Dead remake by uh, Fede Alvarez, just because it accomplished what the original film tried to, but it had the proper budget for it. And it was like, it, it was made to be a scary movie because, you know, obviously Sam Raimi, as good of a filmmaker as he is and how great I think that original one was. It's like, you could tell that it's like, that's yeah, a low budget film. And it was also like early eighties. So it's like, <laughs> that's true. Technically evil dead two is also a pseudo remake of evil dead one. It's almost like now we have a bigger budget. Let's kind of redo this, but make it even crazier. Yeah, it's funny because they didn't, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, I think the thing was they didn't have rights to use footage from the other one. And it's the same thing with Army of Darkness. So Army of Darkness actually kind of retcons things also. And next thing you know, they'll be adapting the musical. Oh yeah, there is a musical. I forgot yeah, about that. I will be volunteering at it on Halloween night, actually. So I'll report back whether it's worth anything. Oh, amazing. Yes, please. Let, let me know how that is. Um as for me, I'm going to take a bit of an easy answer here, and it's not the most imaginative one, but still. Um, a Fistful of Dollars by Sergio Leone, which is effectively a loose remake of um, Yojimbo by Akira Kurosawa. Or, or technically, we could also go Star Wars, which is a loose remake, whether they like to admit it or not, of The Hidden Fortress, also by Kurosawa. But I'm going to go with uh, a, a Fistful of Dollars because... Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is one of my all-time favorite films, and this is where it all stemmed from. The Man with No Name, um, Clint Eastwood, Blondie, whatever you want to call him. It's a great spaghetti western that really kicked things off with the Dollars trilogy. And instead of having it as a samurai who kind of overlooks a town, you have a Lone Ranger where you don't know his motives. You don't know if he's willing to rob this place blind or if he's doing it for himself. Um but he's accepting the role as night watchman, day watchman, whatever you want to call it. The guy who overlooks everything. And this is where we got one of the greatest, in fact, arguably the greatest outlaws, cowboys, whatever in film history. The man with no name. So I'm going with that one. And I would think that's a movie a lot of people, as you alluded to, are unaware it's a remake in the first place. Yeah, I think because it's so drastically different, and I'm not going to go the Magnificent Seven. Seven Samurai is like a thousand times better. It's not even close. But yeah, that was a big thing where Kurosawa was using samurai films to mimic the golden age of westerns, like the John Wayne stuff, and then effectively the newer stuff, whether it's Spaghetti or Revisionist, was replicating what he was doing with the samurai stuff. So it's a really weird evolution of stuff, but it came up with some interesting results, especially the Dollars Trilogy. So that's going to be my pick. Fabulous. Yeah, and on that note, thanks from all of us. This was the K-Cut. Now let's leak into the L-Cut. Have a good night. <laughs>